industrial design and graphic design, I think, are both challenged with showing the power of when you do it at the quality level and engagement with where you need to be, the output and the response is tremendous. Everyone's talking about sustainability, and it's a tired word. It's almost like a minimum viable product type word. I'll be sustainable. Well, sustainability isn't really going to make a profound difference what circular design and circular economy means and how Mm. can we achieve that with design from the beginning versus trying to apply it to something that wasn't made to work that way. Welcome to Design Adjacent, the podcast that talks about the nexus of design, both today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny F. Johnson. And today our special guest is an industrial designer, entrepreneur, investor. He's the founder and director of the award-winning design studio, Box Clever, which is renowned for creating physical products and experiences that delight consumers and build category-leading brands. Our guest today is none other than Brett Ricor. His studio is responsible for designing best-selling products, including Away Luggage, Kerouac Cookware, July Air Conditioners, His San Francisco-based design practice operates at this intersection of industrial design, brand strategy, and investments. Yes, I said investments for design adjacent. We're going to look at Brett's experience, which lies in balancing creative vision with real-world experience and engineering prowess. He understands the nuance of taking an idea from concept to market. He specializes in consumer products with a focus on the creation of physical experience that enhance human relationships. Box Clever operates under the belief that anything can be successfully designed. He is committed to executing a challenge to the most brilliant realization. To do this, he balances the creative vision, as we mentioned, with real-world expertise of industrial design, brand strategy, and a focus on business ventures. Brett, welcome to Design Adjacent. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting. And then you have an awesome radio voice, by the way, <laughs> much better than mine. Oh, thank you. Good, sir. We're going to jump right in. It's, as I mentioned before, this is really exciting for me to have you as a guest for our design adjacent podcast. And we talk about all this space that happens that's driven by design. And I think your work and your consultancy, if we can call it that, really represents that design plus. Talk a little bit. What brought you into design? I had a really interesting upbringing. My, my parents, my mother's an artist. My, my father was more of like a industrial arts okay. focus. And I always thought I was going to be an engineer. And then I went to engineering school and wound up just not enjoying the theory and wanted hands right. on. And then I went the other end. I went to fine arts. And then I wound up going to graduate school after majoring in studio arts in undergrad. And I went to Pratt Institute and received my master's in industrial design. Okay. And it was like a perfect fit. It was taking like this creative energy and problem solving and consumer engagement and emotive connection and learning about like brand and physical tactile experiences really made so much sense to me. And it, it was just from that point on trying to get better at it and learn how to improve the engagement with the end consumer and the product experience. It's really interesting that, you know, you've taken that path and it combines the kind of the engineering rigor with 
the expansiveness of the creative problem solving and you come to kind of working with products and brands. One of the things that's really interesting to your background as well is that you work a lot with startups, mm-hmm. kind of early concepts. What's drawing you into that space? Well, you know, we work with both established mm-hmm. companies like Fortune 10 companies right. and also a person with an idea. And I think when we work with younger companies, the engagement is beyond just following a brief or an immediate need. It's really helping them look at where they need to go with the product. And then it builds into a relationship that's really strong with a founder or founders to help them also connect with other partners. So it's not just us. I mean, there isn't just one person who you hire to help you get to the end product and launching a company. There's a lot of a lot of people involved. And I think that's it's part of what is exciting with a young company is that they'll come to us with an idea and they don't have a tangible idea. Sometimes they'll have a mock-up, but for the most part, they think about what the business opportunity is. And if we are excited about it, then it's amazing. We can join forces and help them take that seed of an idea and really turn it into something more tangible rather quickly. I wanted to jump into that spot because we often think of, you know, a design consultancy going after the big name companies, the big name budgets, Mm -hmm. the kind of pre-existing space in there. But to set your entrepreneurial sites and connecting with other entrepreneurs on the beginning of the idea, Mm -hmm. ideas exist in those larger companies as well. Do you find similar partnership opportunities? Yeah, I think larger companies look to reinvent themselves. And usually the engagement is a bit of a skunk works or a, I have some, you know, someone carves out some budget to go validate something so that they right. can go back inside and sell it through and show a way for the company to either diversify or recapture lost market share. Or there's a lot of reasons that they'll approach us and say, Hey, can you help us? It's similar to a startup. We have to work within tight budget constraints. We have to work fast. Um, speed is the number one asset to a startup. And the other one is usually IP if they have right. it. And if they don't have it, then they have to go even faster. Right. <laughs> the same is true with a large company. Like the, the competitive advantage is either your brand has staying power, but even if it does, you still have to innovate. And so right. innovation, some things, highly technical types of products take years. Other things may even launch in six months if you have everything set up. So it's, it's balancing like what you have available and the budget is a big part of that too. Right. It's what you have available. And you brought up a topic that we often gloss over, but it's really important when we talk about IP or Mm -hmm. intellectual property. Absolutely. So as a creative partner, how do you balance that kind of ownership of the idea? Yeah, we're credited on every design we work on that is filed for patent. So we're inventors in that uh, sense. And a lot of it is usually design patent, which is more about a presentation of a solution versus a utility patent, which is something that is created where it is a new way of doing something which is more technical, could Mm -hmm. involve mechanical engineering, could involve electrical engineering or acoustic or optical. There's like all these different types of utility patent processes and requirements. But for us, it's more about helping them establish a differentiator. And sometimes it has IP and sometimes it's just like packaging it the right way for the brand to stand out. 
And so sometimes it can't be filed, but it is a, a competitive advantage. It's some sort of barrier between you and your competition for at least a period of time. So this, we'll talk about standing out and sure. we're going to talk about you and box clever here. So sure. last year in the midst of all that was last year, right? Fast company named box clever as one of the most innovative design companies of the year. And I quote fast company here for turning the small design consultancy on its head. Mm -hmm. So that sends chills down your spine when you hear that you turn the small design consultancy on its head. Now, how does it feel to, to kind of wake up and do this work every day and, and get that type of recognition? It was amazing to be recognized for what we're trying to do. And I think the the immediate response to that is we're always trying to do something that makes a positive impact. And what this is starting to do is we're seeing this opportunity to shift the entire agency model. And it's not just about us, which is right. one of the things about design is that you design things not for yourself to be used in a vacuum. You want it to be something that's impactful in a very positive way. Uh, and there's obviously business rewards for that. But I think when you look at what we're trying to do, I would love to create a playbook or a guideline mm -hmm. for all agencies to shift their model Right. to reap the rewards of the value that they bring to the table. So that's what we've been working on. And right. we're deep into launching those, those specific entities in the upcoming months. It's interesting that you're authoring and creating a true transition from a service model mm -hmm. agency to really being a true partner. That's right. Yeah. I think the main thing there is I mean, when we talk about industrial design, you know, typically, it's uh, looked at as like an aesthetic application. And right. even you know, in graphic design, too, it's like, well, take my name, my brand mark, and make it beautiful and make it so I can put it on something. I could slap it on here. And in industrial design and graphic design, I think, are both challenged with showing the power of when you do it at the quality level and engagement with where you need to be. The output and the response is tremendous. And I think. It's really the value of design when you are experienced. And I joke and I say, like the especially like the, the older designers in the world, they're kind of like wizards. You know, we have this <laughs> magic that we can right. wield. And uh, I think that that's some of what we're trying to say now is like we're not just a topical application where you just check a box. Like yes, we designed our brand, we designed our product. It's no, we thought about how design is integrated into our company, whether it's a startup right. or a larger company. Now, what becomes really intriguing, and I'd love for you to share with our audience, is it's not just the words in saying that you're integrated throughout the company and design is a part of it. One of the things that's interesting in your model is you're not just the design as service and product and support in that space. You're not just an entrepreneurial partner, but you've evolved Box Clever where you actually have ownership stake in some of the partners that you work with, where you become an investment vehicle as well. Yeah. We learned over the years, a lot of the early engagements we did with having stake in a company, we coined this phase as phrases. We were considered more like a vendor with equity than we were okay. a partner. And we always talked right. about it with them as like, we're your partner, we're your creative partner. We can help with aligning all these different pieces with the right people that need to be involved. And sometimes, it's true. Sometimes we become a partner where they ask us a lot of questions beyond the scope of work and we can help them navigate situations that are new to them, but not to us. 
And those always are very rewarding. And we also see the opposite is when, yes, we are a vendor with equity and we hit this point where they say, thank you, we got it from here. And then we watch them go down the road and it's, it's a little bit of a slow motion effect of a car crash happening as it's oh, going no. forward. You're like, wait, we can help you. Please let us help you like screaming, but no, one can hear you kind of thing. And that's where I think the new model we're talking about, we're engaging in, in a way where we're being very clear about our role and we're not just the design partner. If there's things that we can't do, we're going to work with a group of alliance partners who we know and trust and have proven track records of being able to deliver. And I think one of the things about this is that as being a vendor with equity in the past and moving to this partnership model where we're part of the company, we really can remove this, I call it the brother-in-law effect where okay. you know, like companies will hire people to do different things for them. So we'll say, well, who's doing your sales? Who's setting up all your sales and marketing? Like, oh, well, my brother-in-law doing that. And like, well, who did your brand mark? Oh, my cousin's doing that. And then who's doing engineering? Oh, my friend has a buddy who majored in engineering in school. He's going to do it. And so we don't know, like, yes, these people could be really good, but for the most part, they're free or inexpensive or they like are a buddy. And so right. they want them in on it and it's not the right person or team for the job. And what we see is as a partner, they have to steer and say, we know what it takes way more than the founding partner does. Not to say that we know everything, but we also know who to ask. And we'll go ask like one of the, the best engineering teams in the world about, well, what do you think this is going to take? And they'll give us a soundboard answer. They won't have to sign up. They'll just frankly have a conversation over lunch and say, I think this is going to be a you know $2 million engineering effort. And so we will be able to have a really solid understanding to steer away from accidentally hiring someone and losing time, money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So right. it's really interesting. We see it a lot. We see it at different stages too. It's not always like in the beginning. So you've been doing this for a while. I was going to ask you what kind of lessons or quick signs have you learned as to what are these ventures are destined for quick success? What are on the long haul? Yeah. But what are ventures that you're still surprised that they're around? What, what are some of the, the key factors? <laughs> I can't go too deep. Some of them are still in process, but uh, but, I'll, but I can talk high level. Yeah. We won't we won't name the guilty. Okay. Just... Okay. Well, no, I think we saw some ongoing engagements. I think some of the earlier successes, like away, we learned a lot. They were successful, right? So you can't really say like, well, how could it have been better? How do you know that for sure? But we've seen a pattern throughout, and we're currently working with like Caraway. We've had a lot of success with Caraway and. We've continued to move forward and we've, as we're helping them expand their offering and their, their impact, we learn a lot. And some of the things we already knew, but we couldn't do anything. We were still kind of the vendor, vendor right. with equity, <laughs> but the new model, hopefully it's set up in a way where it provides a bit more of a checks and balances approach to, to like helping stay away from those pitfalls. You know, even though companies have had that success, they've had some pitfalls and we see the ways that we can steer clear. And I think the big thing is a lot of these larger companies are looking at that too. It's not just startups. They want to be in good hands. And that's usually why like large companies pay a lot of money. They can't 
do it twice. They're getting an approved budget, and if once it's approved, they they can't go back and say, "Oh, well, we messed up. We got. Can we just have that budget again next year, and we'll do it over?" It's mitigating that risk in a corporate entity is very similar. When you're a startup, you have a certain amount of funds you've raised, and to go raise more, you have to have the right reasons to do it. You can't say, "Oh, I, I burned through the money and I made a lot of mistakes. Can I have some more money?" Investors like, "Wait a minute." I thought you had a plan. I thought this was going to work. You told me. And coming back for more is always a bad sign in an early stage company. I think that, you know, as we talk further, your experience being on the investing and venture side is really invaluable to how you're positioning the consultancy to, to provide value and work with organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, many times when we're going out and, and I talk to designers who are creating their own business, they're looking at how other people are selecting them. But I'd like to ask the you know reverse of that question. How do you select the partners and clients that you're going to work with? That's a great question. It's very similar to how investors agree to go in on a round with a company. Mm-hmm. There's criteria around, A, what are they doing? Is it a product and an impact that you want to be involved with? Which is a big one for us. As a company, we like we don't design guns. We don't like take steps towards those types of initiatives. But I think the main thing there is we're trying to have an impact in a way where the design is going to be involved with other companies that are trying to do something similar. And it all really hinges on the founders and the people, which is one of the main criteria for investors as well. We have to hear from them. We have to talk with them. We have to understand what they are going to contribute. And moving forward, it's even a bit deeper because we're not just sitting there saying, well, we'll sketch out some designs and go and make your product. We're saying, well, we want to build a business together. So we want to make sure that they understand or they are prepared to run that business. I mean, what is their one year and five year and 10 year plan for that business? So it's a lot deeper on the business side when we're, we're talking about like teaming up to do something together. Yeah. You know, it, it speaks back as I look over the kind of vast list of partners and clients that you've been able to build together. We talk about design helping to solve problems, right? And sometimes these are big problems that are hairy and audacious. These are problems that change the world. And sometimes they're little nuisances that are in there. So I'm going to ask you that question. What's one problem at the epic scale that you'd like to tackle in the future? And what's one small productized problem that you love to, to attack at the small level, at the micro level? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the big pushes we're making right now is um, environmental impact. Like, how do we truly make a difference? A lot of the discussions to date, global warming and just pollution in general, everyone's talking about sustainability. And it's a tired word. It's almost like a minimum viable product type word. I'll be sustainable. Well, sustainability isn't really going to make a profound difference. It will help. But going the other way to have an impact where we're counteracting long-term problems is one of the things that, that we push on. I think it's, I'm actively taking steps, working with a group called The Circulist, and we're trying to show what circular design and circular economy means and how Mm -hmm. can we achieve that with design from the beginning versus trying to 
apply it to something that wasn't made to work that way. So it's a really big eye-opening experience when you talk about materials and impact of those materials that are having on the world. And we're working with different companies that are all mission-driven, but they're going after the problem in different ways. So we're working with like a larger food company, we're working with a smaller startup soap company, we're working with a shipping company that's a startup, and they're all trying to have a really significant impact and change the perception of what people see as just everyday life. Like I'm used to buying my lettuce in a plastic bin, but do we have to buy lettuce in a plastic bin? Like there's questions that we raise through this process. And so, yeah, I think the macro is, can we do this? And the micro is doing it with some of our brands, like, you know, with Eddie, the soap company, we, right. we work with them to take a system that is pretty common. People have refillable soap dispensers and remove as much plastic as possible from that equation, making the pump out of mostly metal and steel, and then having the soap product itself ship in aluminum bottles and using the aluminum as a recyclable element, which is much more, it's actually the higher percentage yield from recycling, meaning that people actually recycle it and reuse it. And it's infinite in terms of its recyclability versus plastic that degrades. So that's an example of like macro challenge and, you know. And the work you did for those who haven't checked it out, the Eddie Soap Dispenser is truly a work of art. It's beautiful. I mean, with, with all of the spaces that we've had, the, the line, you don't sacrifice any of the quality or the beauty that comes with it. And the engineering around it to, to have this, this product you said before, that has this complete recyclability is incredible. Yeah, thank you. It's And it's not easy. That was one of the things that the founders were really big on. They were on a mission and they really partner with us. Sarah and Jameson are great founders that listen and you know, they really know how to take action and um, make things come to life. So it's been, it's been great working with them. So is there any design challenge that you wish you had worked on? Does anything that comes up in you? I think the beauty of what we do right now is that it's, it's still happening. You know, I don't have any regrets because we're, we're doing it. And I think the funny thing is, you know, when I have conversations with people about can, you know, what can you design? And I, I say to them straight up, like, we can design anything, anything, I'm like anything. And that's, it sounds so like cocky in a way. But you know, it's filled with the optimism and the power that design should have. I mean, we started off this conversation and, and I specifically wanted to call out that quote that this is how you guys operate. This is how you think about this core belief that anything can be successfully yeah. designed. And I asked you that to yeah. challenge you a bit of like, hey, what do you think you want to get your hands and ideas on and around? Because we look and you all have had an incredible portfolio of these complex challenges, whether it's plastic removal, whether it's affordability, or kind of the base level sustainability and approaching it with creating these products that delight and engage. Yeah. And I mean, every one of them is about what's, it has a challenge associated with it. Right. You know, it's not just topical. It's they're setting out an mission. And I think that's one of the things that the company is founded on. The, one of the principles is challenge. Like we're boxing clever is an interesting term. It's, it's a British boxing term. And it, it means to, to win with your wit by any means possible. And so it's, it's very much like we're always the underdog and that's what we do this for. And the, the team gets excited about these challenges and the young designers are a little bit like, 
this seems really hard. And, and we're like, of course it is. It's, it's the it whole point. Like we have to take on these challenges and, and that's where the confidence comes in. And the reason why I say that we can design anything is, and people are like, we can design it. Like when it can be made may take time because right. sometimes you need innovation. You need a lot of other partners involved. And sometimes I think that's where there's systems to develop as well. Right? right. Absolutely. So sometimes like we did an ultrasound, it took six years to bring to market. That's not that long. I mean, task shares sometimes take about six years and it's, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's a lot of making sure that it's safe and it can perform in the right. duration and within the constraints and the safety requirements. But then there's some things like hovercraft or all these things that that would require a lot of technical partners. And that's where I get excited because if someone really wants to do something that's highly complex, then we love working with those partners because we can add value while that's going on. And it's not just like we came with the technology, you know, now make it pretty. And it's like, right. we will engage together to make it the right experience, which is really what design does, right? It's integrated all the way through. I'm going to quote you again and sure. with this, that you approach each program with a fresh canvas, optimism, and courage. Yeah. I, when, when you think about this, how, do, how does this apply as you build your teams? Are you, when you're interviewing, are you having these conversations that, to reinforce this ethos of of fresh thinking, optimism, and courage. Yeah, I, th I think that when we have people come and uh, we're, we usually meet a lot of our team members through the team itself. So it's right. almost like by invitation okay. that happens. And a lot of times our portfolio and our approach to, to design is different from other studios. We're right. not known for doing like a specific type of product. So like some studios would be known for like, they're amazing with like digital tech. They do a lot of phones and audio devices and headphones and gadgets and being in Silicon Valley, we, we know a lot of those partners and our position and the way we execute our design is more of engaging with the things in our life, no matter where they are, whether it's technology or a piece of furniture that lasts longer than you, right. those things have to be balanced. So when we look for talent and like other people who want to be part of the challenge, they have to come in with that kind of excitement to do things they've never done before to work on, you know, one day we work on something that's completely analog and another day we working on right. something that's innovative technology. So when you think about, you know, your own career and leadership, What's looking back, what's the hardest project you think you've worked on or the hardest challenge that you faced on the front end? Ooh. They all have a challenge inside, whether it's, and some of them may not seem like they're that challenging. Like, you know, everything from away was challenging because we were trying to move very quickly and we were trying to get into a market that was really old. Um, and we had to think about ways to allow the brand to play, like building a platform mm -hmm. to be used with collaboration in an object that wasn't really pushed on that way before. And so allowing it to have color play and material overlap with other brands was, was challenging. You know, it wasn't like, Oh, just slap a new color on it. It was like, well, how do we create the language that was a way the recognizable language and touch points for a way while having that bridge, for collaborations with other 
established brands or new companies as well. And then you take that and you bring it into other products and you think about similar challenges. And it's a lot of it has to do with the familiarity, which is one thing that I talk about a lot with some of the younger designers. It's like, yes, we want to make something that is ownable, but you also don't want to make it so jarring that only 10% of the population likes it. And there's a balancing act that has to go on there where there's an engagement that's layered from the right. beginning through the product cycle too. And it's not just a, an iconic looking product, but it is something that engages and is familiar in the right ways to a broader market. What advice or insight would you have for those who are listening, who are just starting out or in a journey? What advice would you have for the young designers and the young entrepreneurs, design-driven business starters? I think one of the main things is to not be disheartened by a lot of the naysayers. You know, I think that's one of the things that is exciting working with a lot of young companies is that they're pushing to do something that either has never been done before or hasn't been done to the level that they're envisioning. And I think with young designers, it's easy to lose a lot of momentum or be disheartened in early career paths by the clients who say no to your design or don't take it forward the way you, you envisioned it. And I think one of the things there is with designers, you have to learn more of, of the, the business decisions associated with the design. And the more you can help bridge into the business world around not just costs, but impact and storytelling and like thinking about all the other things that need to happen all the way out. If you can build bridges to some of those, and I always say to my team, just think one step ahead of me, if you can, right. and I'll be happy. And it's, it's hard. It's a big challenge. But if they think one step ahead of the client or try to, at least you're touching on something outside of just the design, like what other wins are you getting? And then if you flip it to the entrepreneurs, I think the thing that I would say there is the value of design is not topical. So when you're a young entrepreneur and you're like, I need you to make it look a certain way so I can go out, build it and sell it and do all the things I know how to do. There's a lot more there that design can do. That's, I think if you can do it right and make a completely authentic story and it's genuinely, this is why we did it. And it's designed that way versus trying to come up with your, your marketing story after you finish the product it is like, a big break there where you have to kind of force something versus it being natural. And so working with designers on the story while it's being designed is going to be a huge win for young companies. You know, I think it's a point that I want to make sure that, that we get our listeners to focus in on design being an essential part of that business story and build Absolutely. out and having it fully integrated in there. And as designers, not settling for just being seen as make it aesthetically pleasing or just add to the end, but understanding your role and impact that it can have in growing the business. And likewise, as you said, for design leaders, for really for, for business leaders, entrepreneurial, to understand that your designers can be dynamic partners for you and are more than just, you know, it's one thing if we respond as designers to make it pretty, it's another thing for the entrepreneurs to only see that as the ask. Right. To know that your designers are, as we've talked about, become your strategic advantage for the work that you're doing. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think it's the the design has to be balanced throughout the process. It's not just a deliverable, which I think is the common right. understanding is like, I sign you up, you design it, you hand it over and that's good. I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to go. And there's a lot more that needs to happen as you bring it to life. And with us, like there's that last 5% is right. mission critical. Something goes wrong and so you, true. Just, you just cut off a corner. It's like, well, that's the corner where you hold it from. It's going to be really uncomfortable now. And, you know, so, everything is completely changed. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So if you build that culture is important in, in our organizations, whether they're startup or restarts or the larger spaces in there, what advice do you have for those listening who are sitting in organizations? They may not be legacy. They may not be startups. They're in between. What advice do you have on fostering a, a culture of innovation? Well, I think it's doing the best work you can do in a multitude of environments will ultimately make you a better designer. Uh, I worked in organizations that were challenging, to say the least, from a management perspective. I worked in a very right. small startup in the beginning, designing um, wristwatches. And one of our main uh, clients was Tiffany and Company. And so uh, I learned a lot about like how that small agency ran, but I also really had an amazing engagement with Tiffany, which is an amazing legacy brand and how their organization ran was, was really interesting. And then I also worked in another in-house environment, working at Sikorsky aircraft, working on okay. helicopters and. So you're doing working, helicopters and watches. <laughs> watches. Then I went to helicopters. I went from like working on tiny complex things to flying complex things. Um, right. And working with the engineering, aerospace engineering in particular is very challenging. I was one of three designers in working with 4,000 aerospace engineers and would be told all the time, that's nice, but it has to fly. That's great, Brett, but it, we can't pull over when we're flying. And you learn how to position and really debate and ultimately position the design thinking so that it is received. And so you have to like think one step ahead of an aerospace engineer or a Swiss engineer. And that was, it was very educational from a career standpoint. It's not school education. This is like real world kind of from an engineering standpoint, nuts and bolts uh, perspective. Right. But then from that, like I was able to go and work with design teams and engineering teams and be able to navigate those situations with ease because I worked in such complex systems that something that is, I want to say simple is like a Bluetooth headset was manageable in a way where I could break it down and I could work through the, the should haves and the nice haves right. with design teams and business leaders as well. So I think like my advice to anyone who's like coming up or working through different types of job environments is that's a building block for you. But right. I would also say, and I'm not going to say like to trigger people to leave their jobs, but you have to know also how you want to be challenged in your next challenge. And I, right. I moved on and I went to San Francisco and I was recruited to go out there and work with and do all sorts of things with him. That was like another jump for me. And I took it on because I saw where I was going. I saw what I'd learned. And that was like my next step. So we talk about next steps and to the extent that you can talk about it and what gets you excited about the year ahead for you and for Box Clever? Well, there's a lot happening. You know, last year, I'll rewind two years ago. So when the pandemic hit, we were okay. a little smaller. 
And then over the course of the first wave of the pandemic, we actually doubled in size. And so when we came back to the studio as an organization, we grew and we're repositioning ourselves and then didn't just hire like all, you know, interns. We, We hired all different types of design levels as well as some senior leadership. So I have a team now that's working with me to help drive the company forward into the next chapter of how we're engaging as a partner versus as a vendor. And we're still going to do our you know traditional fee and service model with established companies because a lot of those companies aren't able to just switch over and say, well, we'll give you stock for service. That's not a common model to date. And maybe down the road, maybe we'll push there. But but I think that's the the, the big push as we're moving forward is to really send a message around how design can engage differently with businesses and then show proof of that. We're already working with four companies that are partner model and we're the entities are being formed. So it's like, it's going to be revealed probably next couple months to show like how those are happening, what we're doing with those. When you then take a look at what's happening in the marketplace with innovation and design driven companies, do you have reason to be optimistic? When you look around, does it make you smile? You see the role design is having. Yeah, it's an amazing time. I mean, that's one thing I say to a lot of students who are graduating from school during the pandemic, or I guess we're still in the pandemic. So since the pandemic has happened, I'll say like, this is, I know it seems discouraging. It's not like you kind of missed out on the pre-COVID normal life, but I, I see this as an amazing time for design. This is where we get to rethink everything and not just product design, but like the way we live, the way we work, the way we view, engage with brands. I think we were very fortunate to be positioned in a spot where we had a lot of experience with direct-to-consumer brands. And so as we were going into COVID, we were already experts in how to do that. And now a lot of companies have looked at that and they're seeing like they can't just be a retail brand anymore. And a lot of companies like big retailers like Target and Walmart, they've always had like e-com, but it, it was a smaller part of their business. And I think what happened is with the shift to forced e-com, all of these companies, not just that, but everyone who didn't really have a strong e-com presence had to figure it out. So there was this massive, like, I need to be direct to consumer. How do I do this? And so you have these old brands trying to figure out how to be new brands. And there's a there's this big shakeup going on. There's acquisitions, there's mergers, there's umbrella brands. Like a lot of the catalog brands that had their own home products are right. now an online catalog. They have, they're a mall for the home and they partner with other brands and they carry them under their brand. And that, that's a way for them to have more reach and more, more market gain. And I think that's one of the things that we see right now is that's going to continue. But with young designers, that's a huge opportunity. Like we're like at this forefront of the next way to engage with customers. And, and we're able to design in really thoughtful things around environmental impact. And like, what does it mean? What is this brand really about versus just trying to be a player in a space? You know, I think with those words, it's a great way to end our conversation. When we think about all the work you've done, Brett, as a thinker, a careful designer, strategist, investor, I'm going to repeat before we started that 
that core belief that anything can be successfully designed. And we can see how that energy comes through all the work that you're doing, but also how Box Clever is making its way. When we think about that, I love the connection with the name to outwit, outlast, and outthink. Thank you, my friend, for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. This has been really a pleasure, and I look forward to following up in the future. Likewise. And we're, we're going to catch in and see what's happening next from this year with new investments and new innovations. And I invite everyone to check out some of the incredible products um, and solutions that Brett and the team have been working on. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of Design Adjacent. And we invite you to join us for our next episode. We'll continue to look at design's role in driving change in the world around us, both today and for a more optimistic tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny Johnson, and thank you. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent Podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Li Shan Huang. Until next time.